This is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Faith Revisited Podcast. This is Ben. I'm here with my dear friend uh, and revered pastor, leader, author. Uh, how many titles do you have now? George Acevedo, the uh, pastor of Grace Church in uh, in uh, Cape Coral, Florida, but y'all have three campuses, four? Yeah. Th- three okay. campuses spread across Southwest Florida. We've had you on the podcast before, but just in case, can you give us like the 90-second intro? Who are you, George, and sure. uh, where where is God calling you right now? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I am uh, serving at Grace Church. I've been here for 27 years and uh, finishing uh, up my run here this August. I'll be retiring in August and stepping into a ministry of coaching and writing and um, uh, and speaking, um, uh, but have uh, served uh, in the United Methodist Church for 38 years. Um, and uh, again, 27 of those in this one spot. I'm still in my first lead pastor uh, gig. Um, and uh, our church is a turnaround story. Um, and then uh, we started uh, helping other uh, closing or nearly closed United Methodist churches uh, experience some turnaround. Uh, we didn't hit 100%. Uh, we were about 50%. Uh, we tried six and three of them worked. Mm. Um, and so uh, I like to tell people that, you know, not everything we touched turned to gold. Um, and we had our fair share of uh, experiments that didn't work. So, um, and uh, I'm in the process, most exciting thing of, of handing off uh, the lead pastor role. I've actually already done that. I'm kind of living in the liminal space while uh, my, my lifetime Timothy, uh, he was in my youth group when I was a student in seminary, uh, is, ta- is assuming the lead pastor role. His name is Wes Olds. And uh, he'll be assuming that role, or he has assumed that role officially uh, January 1st. And I've kind of taken a, a way, way back seat. I'm actually working out of my office now. I don't have an office there at the church. And uh, and then this August, I'll be, be stepping away to start this new adventure in my life. That's awesome. So we've had you on before to talk about leadership today. I want to talk about something very specific. Um, it's one of the things that I've admired about you for years and Grace Church for years, but it's now something, and I've mentioned it in a couple podcast episodes recently, that you and I are, are, are brothers on a journey, and, and that is a journey of recovery. Um, yeah. I am 14 months sober. Way to go. Um, I've, I've had um, years of just private struggles of you know, dealing with various things. And, and as uh, the big book of, of Alcoholics Anonymous says, 
you know, for I fooled myself into thinking that alcohol could do for me what I could not do for myself. Um, and, and it's only been in, in the last 14 months that and with God's help and the help of a sponsor and good friends and family and all that I've gotten into a much better role. And I took a sabbatical last year. That was part of it, too, just to make a connecting point for the audience. I took a month off. And part of that that I was private about was I just needed to unplug and almost do like a self um, self-imposed sort of rehab of just focusing on recovery in my family for a month. Recovery has been a big part of your journey. So, you know, I'd like to start with, um, you know, there's a pattern in, in recovery talks that I've heard sort of how it was, what changed and how things are now. And I'd kind of love as much as you'd like to share sort of briefly, like, how was it with you, you know, when you struggled with, with, uh, with, pre-recovery and sort of in your active addiction phase. Sure, sure. You know, my story isn't um, one of, you know, kind of going from the gutter to the rooms of AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a little, you know, kind of around the mulberry bush journey there. Um, and, you know, every person's a story is different, you, you know, uh, but it, even, you know, but that which is most personal is also most universal, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, um, so let me tell you mine, I, I took up the family business, that's what I call it, the family business of drinking. Uh, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, uh, I remember my first drunk, it was pink champagne, at my brother's wedding, uh, at his first wedding, and, uh, and got sick as a dog. Um, but I also liked it. Yeah, it was something, something about it. I liked it. And so from about 11 uh, through, you know, it was stealing dad's liquor and filling it with water, that sort of deal. But I would, I would call it much more recreational. It was not, it was not to deal with my deep, dark problems of my adolescent years, you know, uh, my early adolescent years. But uh, my junior year in high school, um, or my sophomore year in high school, uh, I was uh, my identity was built around uh, being an athlete. Uh, I was a pretty decent athlete. I wasn't a great athlete by any means, but I had the jersey. I was good enough to make the team. Big high school, three thousand students in three grades, and that jersey became my identity. And then I I, I took just uh, it was back before orthoscopic surgery. I took a, a an injury to my right knee uh, in fall football. And, um, and that was the end of my football career. And so uh, from about the middle of my sophomore year of high school uh, until uh, after high graduating, uh, I, I, I took up the family business in earnest of uh, drinking and drugging. Um, and it was primarily built around the search for identity, my deep mm. desire to be accepted uh, by my peers, um, and uh, which is a which is an adolescent, you know, we know it's a primal, kind of a primal adolescent need. Um, but my way of doing that was just to be a party animal. If I, if I couldn't be an athlete and my athletics kind of kept my drinking in, in check, it'd be an occasional thing. But once athlete athletics and coaches were out of my life, uh, it, it was pretty full bore. Um, about my junior year, middle of my junior year, I bumped into these crazy people from Campus Crusade for Christ that were on our high school campus. Think of them like Young Life or Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, they were uh, believers that had the kind of the courage to step onto the campus and to be uh, an incarnational presence there. And they invited me to some of their meetings um, that were held uh, not in churches, but were held in little uh, little uh, condo association 
game rooms kind of places and they sang you know dust in the wind and and uh and gave these little talks about everything in life about self-esteem and and peers but always had this kind of god focus near the end it stirred in me an interest in god so much so that i joined a small group my senior year of high school and it was my senior year of high school uh in january of 1978 um that uh i did what sam shoemaker said who influenced uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I gave as much of myself as I could to as much of God as I understood. Mm. And I surrendered my life to a Jesus that I didn't really know or understand, but that I took my friend John uh, at his word, uh, could give me purpose and meaning. Uh, He didn't go down the died for your sins path. He went down the purpose and meaning path. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I needed. Uh, He was a wise evangelist. uh, I went out that night and smoked a joint with my best friend, Greg, to celebrate that I was a Christian. Um, and and uh, I kind of sidebar, you know, if you're going to want to reach people who are really, really far from God, um, you have to take them where they are, not where you want them to be. And um, and my journey uh, with God began there. And I knew something was different. I now know that it's the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But something was going on inside of me. I didn't go to church. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't pray uh, for about six or eight months. And uh, after going to a, a conference for Campus Crusade, I actually realized and found out I needed to be in fellowship. And so I found a church that had a great youth group, mostly because they had good looking girls. I've been married to one of those girls for 41 and a half <laughs> years now. So it worked out well for me. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. And um, but, I, but my truth was, my real truth was, I was a follower of Jesus and I loved Jesus and I loved marijuana. Mm-hmm. I loved Jesus and I loved girls. I loved Jesus and I loved rum and coke. And so uh, it was a struggle for me. It was that Galatians 5 flesh sets itself against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. And, um, you know, pretty much Sunday and Wednesday nights I could do okay. Um, But the rest of the week I was really, really struggling. Uh, I got married uh, way too young. Cheryl was gracious with me, got married, um, and, and really white knuckled my sobriety for a lot of years and did not self-identify as an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, it was in the ordination process, mind you, when they began to identify some of my defects of character, Mm. uh, and, and, and demanded that I go into therapy, that my therapist was a sex addict who had had decades of recovery and really used the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as his healing path for his clients. And so basically I was paying a guy $50 a week in seminary days. Uh, You can't get therapy for $50 now, but for $50 a week, I was paying this guy what I could have gotten in the room for free for a dollar. And he walked me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, but again, I didn't have the language for it, the concepts for it. Graduated from seminary. I got scared about halfway through seminary because I went out then and I got just stone drunk and it scared me. And I just gripped on tighter um, because, and I'm not saying that my faith wasn't sufficient, but my faith wasn't sufficient mm. uh, because the church in those days didn't, didn't talk as freely about recovery as in many places, not in all places, but as in many places we talk about recovery now. I mean, you wouldn't have read about emotionally healthy spirituality 15 years ago, 20 years ago. 
um, it's really a, you know, uh, Celebrate Recovery from Saddleback Church is a 20, 25 year experiment that was very small and embryotic for a decade or more before it became this movement that it is, particularly in American Christianity. Um, it was after I graduated from seminary when my brother went into rehab uh, that I really then, when in the intake nurse said, you all have a problem. And I said, no, he's got a problem. He's got a cocaine. And he reminded me that this addictions, uh, she reminded me, my, our intake nurse reminded me that this addictions was a family issue. And that's when I got into what was back then, this is uh, pre-choose recovery or celebrate recovery. I got into some of the, what was called the serenity literature that was kind of this crossover literature. Um, uh, there was uh, um, Hunger for Healing um, and, and books like that I began to read. And that's when I first identified as an alcoholic. And uh, while I was, uh, I went to my second appointment and that church decided to launch Celebrate Recovery. And I got that material and I was like, oh, this is, gives me language yeah. to my inner journey. And the 12 steps in their biblical comparisons became a regular part of not just my ministry, but my own personal life. And it became my life guide, you know, for discipleship. So um, I've been here at Grace Church and uh, been here 27 years. And 23 years ago, we launched uh, Celebrate Recovery. We've now rebranded it as Choose Recovery. We still use the 12 steps in their biblical comparisons. Um, and then just one last piece to add to the, to the narrative is about... Um, uh, about almost 20 years ago, my youngest son took up the family business and he took it up big and hard. He skipped drinking and, and marijuana and he went straight to cocaine and then to opiates. And so we had a child that was dying at the end of this hallway down the street from, from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and for 15 years, we weren't sure whether he was going to live or die. Um, he was homeless, uh, he was uh, in and out of jail, in and out of rehab, and um, uh, we had to kick him out of the house at one point when he was stealing opiates from my aging father. And um, and by the grace of God, he's been sober now a little over four years. Uh, he's living in Colorado, living a very fruitful life and a fulfilled life, and we have a remarkable relationship. That's right. But um, yeah, so this journey is very personal. Uh, my dad's an addict, his father was an addict, and his father before him, at, as I've heard the stories, they're stories of addicts. And um, uh, and so that's why we call it the family business. And um, my youngest son uh, took it up, and he has uh, he's violently ill, uh, um, uh, and, and uh, he has a, a strong allergy uh, yeah. to, to chemicals right now. And by the grace of God, he's clean and sober. That's awesome. Yeah, I, you know, there are all kinds of things to unpack. I I remember also the first time that I drank, I was 20 because I had joined the whole Bible study campus ministry thing in high school and was just so much of a perfectionist, president of my youth group, you know, all this stuff that like, like sobriety was like, you know, I, we were in, I was in the 90s. So the whole purity movement was a big sure, thing. Don't drink, don't have sex, don't do any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I bought in and then I went to college and, and I only have language now in looking back that I was terribly uncomfortable with people. 
and I just wanted to fit in. Mm. So when all my buddies were going to the bar, I wouldn't go, wouldn't go. And finally one night I went and I remember they said, Hey, have a beer. And I was like, I don't really even like the taste of beer. And they said, get one of these fruit flavored beers, you know, <laughs> kind of like the pink, pink champagne or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I did. And I remember taking about 80% of it down, just boom. And I remember about five seconds later, this feeling came over me that for the first time in years, I felt comfortable in my own skin. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I partied like a college kid, but then when I got married, you know, um, we, we were too broke in seminary to afford much. Alcohol. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we had to nurse a bottle of wine for a week, mm. but as I got into my first appointment and thereafter, we had more money and more ability and it just became a thing pretty quickly that for about the last pretty much all of my thirties, um, I was a heavy drinker and I was a nightly drinker. It was part of my, I'm a very regimented, almost OCD mm -hmm. about routines. My body knew when eight 30 at night hit, I would sit down, pour a drink, start watching a ball game on TV. And I would disconnect from the stress of ministry unwind as I thought I was doing. And it would just be a progressive thing. Um, and you're right. There's a lot of identity in it. Um, there's a lot of just escaping the thing, uncomfortable things that, that we don't mm -hmm. like to feel as human beings. And rather than sitting with those feelings, I, I equated it to like, if you think about like maybe something that'd be on like an old episode of the twilight zone where like a guy's in a room and he can open a door and go into an alternative universe. Mm -hmm. That was alcohol for me at night. And I could just leave the world of stress and ministry, go to this other world, wake up the next day with a hangover, but I could drink water and power through and be back in my ministry world. But it was my way of getting away. Mm -hmm. um, only to really just realize that, that I, I just got tired of it. Yeah. Um, I, I was sleeping more closer. I got to 40. I just wasn't sleeping good. And I just physically was wearing down. I was experiencing burnout at work. Um, COVID, you know, contributed both to my disease and to just, I think, fizzling out from it. Um, but I definitely feel a lot of your story there of, of it just giving me a sense of who I was until it just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the 12 steps, I agree with you. I, I've been in ministry for 13, 14 years now. I've been a Christian most of my life, all of that. I'm not sure today that I have internalized the power of God in my life the way that I have in the last 14 months working the 12 steps. Yeah. God has moved me and changed me in ways that I've never experienced. It's almost like that, you know, the, the head and heart knowledge. It's like I had all mm -hmm. the head knowledge and I thought I had the heart knowledge, but it was only through the power of God working through the 12 steps that I just realized God's healing power um, and it's life changing. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we, we, we throw around words in the church like transformation mm -hmm. and change and life change. And, you know, we, we, we love to preach about the transformation of Mary Magdalene or the transformation of Peter and, you know, or Paul and we call we use language like conversion. Mm-hmm which which speaks to significantly more than just the transactional understanding of my sins for his righteousness you know it's it's more than just a boom, boom you know stamp the stamp the, the the you know the ticket or whatever um 
or at least it should be. I mean, I hope yeah. our theology is robust enough to go that when we talk about transformation, we're talking about racists becoming reconcilers. Mm. We're talking about mean people becoming kind. Mm-hmm. Angry people becoming filled with shalom and peace. And how does that happen in the community of faith? And how does that happen? And, you know, after uh, what, over 50, almost 50 years of being a Christ follower, yeah, almost 50 years of being a Christ follower, um, I, I don't think it's preacher hyperbole for me to say, I know of no better pathway to the kind of transformation we hope for than the simple, doable pathway of the 12 steps of yep. Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and here's what I mean by that. When you just look at each of the steps, there's nothing that with God's help that the step requires of us that we can't do. Mm. And taken together, they seem to kind of grab the whole package, you know what I mean, yeah. of, of the journey of transformation. Um, I try to oversimplify things, or I try to simplify things. So it seems to me that like steps one, two, and three reestablish my relationship with God. Yep. I'm powerless. There's a God who can fix me. And then they need to surrender my life to that God. And then uh, steps four, five, six, and seven help me begin that journey of fixing myself. Mm-hmm. So I love God. I love myself so that I can love my neighbor. That's the, the, the next part. So I'm loving myself. And so I, I, I got to do this ugly digging work. I got to get the spade out and do the fourth step share it with, in the fifth step, with myself, with God and somebody that I trust, a sponsor. And then I got to say, God, you know, what's behind a lot of the, what's behind, well, it's these defects of character. God, show them to me. And then God, would you fix them? Yeah. So I, so I, I, I begin the journey. I've, I've begun the journey of fixing my relationship with God. I've begun the journey of fixing my relationship with myself. Um, uh, so, you know, four, five, six, and seven, and, and then eight and nine, I, it's time for me to love my neighbor well, and I got to go make the amends uh, with those with whom I that I've hurt. In in those steps, I, I make the list, and then I go do the work. Again, no, you look at any one of those steps, and you go, no, you know, with God's help, I can do that. And then the last steps are what help me stay in this ongoing rhythm of fixing my relationship with God. And keeping it well and whole, keeping my relationship with myself well and whole, and keeping my relationship with others well and whole. And in that last step, it's the evangelism step, if you will, where we joyfully and freely give it away to others. And it seems to me um, that the wisdom of Bill W. and his colleagues was that they took the Sermon on the Mount and they, they, they fleshed it out into 12 easy, doable uh, steps. When I say easy, I don't mean easy as an, oh, you know, but I mean, like it can be done. Yeah. There is possibility in 
you know, if, if, if God will help me get to a place where I can acknowledge that I'm powerless over my addictions and compulsive behaviors, which is a huge step. I'm not suggesting that's easy for any of us. And that I can continue to live in this kind of cycle and rhythm. Um, I can literally be transformed and racists can become reconcilers. Mean people can become kind people, you know, angry people can be filled with peace and shalom. Um, and I've been privileged. One of the gifts of being in the same church for a long time is that I've actually been privileged to do this. I, I walked into an office this morning. I, I ran by the, by the church office, uh, to pick up a few things. And, and I ran it, uh, I saw some folks, they knocked on the windows, I walked by. So I went back in and it's the, the woman who leads our recovery ministry. And if you could hear Rochelle's testimony, she was in Lee County's most wanted list. The, 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 when she, the, 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 she leads a recovery ministry with hundreds of people in recovery. And she was hiding in a suitcase from the sheriff, literally in a suitcase. She was so little and emaciated. She was hot. And now she leads a recovery ministry. She was talking to another guy who three and a half years ago was in prison and Sunday, yesterday, preached at one of our campuses. Wow. That's transformation. Yeah. That's transformation. Both of them opiate addicts, which, I mean, the recovery for opiate addicts is is real, the margins are pretty thin. And, and these folks are transformed by the power of Christ, but it's by the power of Jesus uh, as they've worked these steps in this robust community of grace and mercy and accountability. I mean, don't make, it's not just grace, it's grace and truth. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, that's a sponsor. They don't put up with your BS. They nope. just, they'll, you know, uh, one of, one of the stories I'll, I'll tell this quickly, uh, Ben, one of the stories that, that was kind of like an eye opening. I was driving with a, with a guy that's got what he, he calls Northeast recovery. He said, I don't put up with any of this kind Southern recovery. You know, he, he grew up in the, in the inner city, you know, New York city. Yeah. And uh, he got sober there and uh, we were driving down the road, the phone rings. And so I turn off the radio, I'm driving and he's sitting in the seat next to me and he talks to this guy and he goes, oh, so you're not going to listen to what I say? Well, just go ahead and drink and die. And then he hangs up on the guy. <laughs> and I go, you know, I wanted to wreck the car and I go, you can't say that. And he goes, yeah, I can. He said, he's either going to not drink or he's going to drink and die. Yeah. This is life or death. And so, you know, uh, this is uh, this is the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Uh, where are your accusers? There are none. This is a fellowship of, of, of drunks. Uh, but it's also uh, go and sin no more. It's like, don't be taken up. No, you know, don't be going back to your old ways, girl. Yeah. You know, don't be going. It, it, this, there's some there's some accountability in this thing. So it, it is John 1 14. He was full of grace. He led with grace, but he always followed with truth. He always followed with truth. He didn't yeah, they, negotiate with the rich young ruler, you know? Yeah. He didn't go 90%, 80%, 70%. No, give it all. Coat the poor, come follow me. I think it was, you know, I, I'd have to go back and look at the big book, but Bill Bill even writes that in somewhere in step four or five that, you know, he basically says, all right, now that you've made it this far, if you relapse, he's real clear you're relapsing by your own volition because mm -hmm. you now know better. Yep. Like you're, you're taking back your will. The scales, the scales are, have fallen from your eyes. You see mm -hmm. the difference between your will and God's will. Mm 
-hmm. You've made it this far. If you relapse, that that is a choice you need to know that you've made. And and you know, and one of the more powerful things we can, it's so amazing that in the church, I have not experienced this same power in the tension. But you want to see grace and truth in action. Look at watch a person who comes back to the rooms. Yeah. And they say, I relapsed. And everybody in that room, you know, and I, I, you know, you say, you know, some, some people justify or rationalize and some people say, nope, you relapsed, but guess what? We're so glad you're back. Glad you're back. Here's a white chip. <laughs> That's right. Here's a white chip. Let's start over. Start all over again. Yeah. yeah. And, it, it, and it is, it's that, it's that grace and truth in such extravagant ways that mm -hmm. takes you just as you are, warts and all, and says, you know, we love you and we know you can be better. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's possibility in here. Yeah. One question I want to ask, because I think clergy struggle with this, and I think people within the church probably struggle with this, because we get so caught up on appearances of righteousness. Why, especially with, we can start with clergy, but just people in general, why do we struggle in our addictions so much? Why do clergy struggle asking for help? That was yeah. my struggle for a long time was I didn't know how to ask for help. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, I think there, there's uniqueness to every story, but there's also, again, that which is most personal is most universal. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think some of it is the role. I mean, clearly, you, you know, I mean, we're the only vocation on the planet that would have the audacity to put reverend at the front of our name. <laughs> I mean, it's it, ironically, it's one of the reasons why I don't know if there's anything that we've ever printed that has that. Um, I, I, I choose pastor. I mean, that, that's, I can barely embrace that identity, yeah. much less the reverend identity. Yeah. You know? So I do think, you know, some of it is some of the, uh, you know, the cultural um, uh, iconic, iconic understandings of, you know, what does it mean to do this job, to do this work? Um, and, but I also think for a lot of us, it's just, um, I, I, my, my observation is that a lot of us used our vocation as a way to navigate our addictions, Wow. So for me, this thing about identity is so deeply felt. I mean, I'm 63 years old and, and I'm still, you know, there's, there's still some of those dragons that I'm, that me and the Holy spirit and others are slain. I'm a spiritual director and, and my therapist and I, uh, for me, I, I'm an Enneagram three off the charts achiever, you know, that sort of deal. And I think my main addiction was not drugs and alcohol. I think my main addictions was this whole performance piece. Wow. I mean, I think that's at the core of this identity piece that, it, it, that I have to earn it and that, that I have to earn it. And so what did I do in those early days of undiagnosed white knuckling? I had enough of a moral center, um, and was able to, you know, by hook or crook, keep the drinking at bay. So I wasn't drinking, I wasn't drugging. 
But what was I doing? I was working 80, 90 hours a week. Yeah. And I had two little boys at home and a, and a wife. And, and I was, I was, I was using my uh, handling of the holy things, like the Levites, handling of the holy things as an excuse to not deal with my crap, to not deal with my stuff. And I would, would tell you that that journey has been uh, as equally painful, uh, no, it was more painful than those early days of, of even white knuckling sobriety with, with, with the limited tools that the church could give me, which was basically pray and read the Bible. Yeah. You know, serve a little bit, tithe, you know, those kinds of things. We didn't, we didn't have in our church tool pouch. I mean, I never knew anybody who went to therapy in my church. Mm. I'm talking about early Christian Christian experience. Um, only in seminary did I start to hear about counseling and therapy and those kinds of things and emotional wellness and family of origin issues and those kinds of things. Um, so I think some of us, some of us who do what we do professionally, if you will, who, who do, I, I think that ministry can become a great place to hide uh, in our addictions. And um, because all this stuff, all this regalia that's a part of our lives, including our licensure stuff that's over there and degree stuff that's over here, they just become, they become, um, they can become, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them in and of themselves, but they can become kind of veils. You, you know, I'm a pastor and, um, and I, and I think that at, at the end of the day, we, we, we still find ourselves broken. I, I'll never forget Ben. Uh, uh, there was a season uh, for about almost 20 years where I was spending an inordinate amount of time on airplanes, flying around, speaking at annual conferences and doing pastors conferences. And inevitably I would talk about uh, my story, my son's story, the addictions, and I'll never forget uh, a bishop in the church coming up to me and sharing with me about a family member. Uh, I was the first person that this bishop had shared this story with about a family member who was lost in an addiction. And would I, would I partner with this bishop in, in kind of a prayer support relationship? Um, uh, and, and this bishop said to me, I've, I've not told anybody. Mm. Nobody knows. So what happens when you're a bishop of the church and you have a, a dear loved one in the house who's like out of control? And, and, and so I get some effect. I have some affection, some affinity for that to, you know, when our own son at the end of the hallway was in the Lee County newspaper where I've been serving for all these decades as getting arrested for his drug addictions. And I'm the pastor of of a growing church in town, you know, I had to say grace over my role uh, as both pastor and my role as father and, and how to navigate all those things. And that gets into all of this identity stuff again, yeah. you know? So. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, um, I, I love what you said about pastors, whether we choose to or not using the vocation 
to, to hide. Um, my sponsor is actually also a church member and, and, okay. you know, we're a peer and it's one of these dual relationships that I really kind of, I was, I would, I needed somebody and I went to him mm -hmm. and thank God he's emotionally healthy enough that he said, listen, if we do this, <laughs> you're going to have to know that there's a time when you're my pastor and there's a time when I'm your sponsor. There you go. I said, okay. And uh, one of the points that he drove home was, and he's see, but, but the key here is he saw me up close and personal vocationally. Mm -hmm. And he said, I can tell you right now, just watching you, you are going to have to learn how to dis disentangle your identity as Ben from your identity as the leader of Trinity church. Mm -hmm. Because what I see is those two, you and you and the church are one in the same. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a great illustration in the big book. You remember about the, the actor on stage and, and the tension with the one behind the scenes who, and they're, they're two different people and they're trying to reconcile that. And he said, if you're able to go through these steps, you got to get comfortable with who you are. And then you can bring that to your leadership roles and be because he said there's going to be an element of your life you're always going to be an actor on stage hey, sure you can also just be you and not yeah. have all the things all the pressures and all the you know whatever's and I, I worry now having gone through this for a year and really experiencing some symptoms of burnout that too many of us pastors think the church lives and dies on us almost yeah. as though we're the savior even though we proclaim jesus as savior yeah so, so I don't know how much you're uh, aware of or have read uh, it, some of the family system stuff that Murray Bowen does. Oh yeah, and and uh, uh, one of my colleagues, the the new lead pastor at Grace Church West Olds, has recently written a great book. I'd encourage it for your listeners to consider. It's called Confronting the Thief Within. Mm. And uh, he talks about uh, Murray Bowen's idea of self differentiation. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I've been on a five, we've been on it. Our church has been on a five year. First, it was very quiet and clandestine. Uh, and then it became more public in the last two and a half years. Uh, succession plan. Because I've been here a long time. It's a large church. It's kind of complex. And so you don't just walk away. You don't walk in one day and say, hey, I'm done. See you later. You know, I'll see you. Um, it's really been a, a long, carefully thoughtful, spirit-guided community accountability uh, experience, experience. And one of the things I've had to do, Ben, uh, as I'm getting ready to walk away from pastoral ministry and enter into this new kind of ministry of coaching and writing and speaking, and, and it really is laying down my role, which I've had for 40 years as pastor and picking up a new role, but I'm laying down this pastoral role, is I've had to get really clear in my inner world about being self-differentiated, particularly from a church that I've been at for, you know, half of my adult life. Uh, 27 years. And I'm glad to report that now we're six months away from, you know, I'll tell you the day I turn in the keys in the last credit card, whether it's actually happened. But I, I, if I'm bet, if I were a betting man, I would tell you, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be tears and sadness and all those kinds of things. But my soul feels self-differentiated. And, 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 and here's the sad part. I'm going like, I probably should have lived this way my entire ministry and not just in the last couple of years. Does that, does that make sense? Oh yeah. Thousand percent. And, and so I do think this, this idea for those of us who handle the holy things, here's an interesting thing. And I just broke, this is 
This is a freebie for the clergy that are listening. It's interesting that in the book of, Le- of Leviticus, uh, you know, that exciting book, that uh, you can only work in the inner court where all the action was. Because remember, there's three courts. There's the court of the Gentiles where women and the Gentiles could come. There's the court, the inner court, which is where the sacrifices were made that only the Jewish men could come. And then there's the Holy of Holies that high priests go in once a year. And so the inner court, in the inner court, the Levites could only work, get this, from 25 to 50. Hmm. And so recently I've been thinking about why the 25-year window. And I think it's because, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize. I think it's because God knows that if we handle the holy things too much, we become enmeshed with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That when we're handling the sacrifices of God's people, when we do our priestly role, that if we don't, if if we don't get self-differentiated from that, uh, we we do it to our own demise and really the demise of the people of God. So, so it's interesting that, and this is across denominational, non-denominational, we typically give a, a man or a woman their biggest assignment when they have the least amount of energy. Mm. So, you know, one of the things I'm just thinking in my crazy brain is, you know, what does this mean for us as clergy? How do we live? How can we live in the inner court handling the holy things, but self-differentiated from the holy things? And um, because there is a priestly pastoral role that we play with people and it's sacred. I, I did a funeral on Sunday for a dear or Saturday for a dear, dear friend. And I held it as a sacred trust, but I can't hold it too tightly. I'm not their savior, you know, Uh, somebody already took care of that, you know, Um, or as Wes's therapist said to him, who happens to be Jewish, he said, uh, I thought in your tradition, there was somebody already died for the people. I didn't think it was your job, Wes, (laughs) you you know, (laughs) and uh, I thought that guy already took care of that on that cross thing, you know, And, uh, and yet, yet we sometimes feel like as clergy that we have to die for our congregation. Mm. And, uh, and then we wonder why we find ourselves addicted to porn or addicted to food or addicted to performance or addicted to any number of things. And it's because we're not self-differentiated from our work. Yeah. You know, I don't know where George starts and where pastor ends, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And that, and that, you know, can cross, I mean, I think clergy are especially susceptible, but, but for all vocations and people, I mean, there, there's a, there's an element of knowing where I end and where other people begin, you know, in the, in the, in the program, you know, we say that you, you can't, you, you can't control people, places and things. And, and, and I, I feel people kind of say, well, what do you mean? Someone needs to, I understand, but my first role I'm learning is to keep my side of the street clean. What you do on your side of the street is your business, and it may irritate me, but usually when it irritates me, I need to look within me first and deal with whatever that is Mm -hmm. and trust that God can handle what is going on in your life. Yeah, Yeah. that's powerful. and, And I would use what you just said as one of the markers of our transformation, Think of it in this way. When you read a scripture, is your impulse to go, boy, this would be good for X, Y, and Z? 
Or is your impulse, is your first impulse to go, let me apply this to myself first, and then maybe it's to be to help somebody else. Um, I, because I do think the journey of wholeness uh, and what the steps get right is that I got to get right with God. And then I got to, you know, we got to get the order right. I mean, I grew up in like where our youth choir was called joy choir, Jesus, and then others and you. And so, you know, it's so like we, we love Jesus. And then, then we got to gut it out and love others. And then, well, there's nothing left for you, but that's not the order. That's not God's order in, in, in the old or new Testament around this thing. It's, it's, I love Jesus. Yes. I love the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I, I need to cultivate that and have containers that are, that allow me to nurture myself in that relationship. But then, I mean, the only way I'm able to keep Sabbath, I mean, like I never took Sabbath until I started this journey of self-differentiation Yeah. because I could never stop. But when I learned that that part of my responsibility for before God is to love myself. Yeah. And, and, and that means the hard work of self-examination on a daily basis. Um, I have two little practices I do. Uh, one's called the five, one, two in the morning. I, I write out five things I'm grateful for. Um, all the research on neuroplasticity says that gratitude changes our brain. Uh, or as Arlene says at our church, uh, grateful alcoholics don't drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I name five things and I try to give robust, not like I'm thankful for my call with Ben. I'm thankful for my call with Ben, a fellow journeyer on the journey of alcoholism, you know, and then I, I try to write a robust statement as to why I'm grateful for Ben. And then I name the one thing that's really bothering me. Like I have, to, and that typically takes a lot of introspection. Like what is, what is bothering my soul? Where's my soul in dis-ease? I've discovered when I name it, I take its power away. Yep. So that when it comes around, it tries to hit me in the back of the head at two in the afternoon. I've already named it. And so then, and then, and then two things, the number two is uh, two things that are going to make the day great, you know, Mm -hmm. and often it's things like slow down, finish a task so that you can uh, enjoy the rest of the week or whatever it might be. So five, one, two. And then in the evening, uh, after I kiss my wife, goodbye or good night, I, I typically just uh, ask God three questions. Uh, God, what can I celebrate? Uh, what can I confess and what can I change? Mm. And those, and so I live life between these two examines that are gifts I give to myself so that I can love myself well. Yeah. And if I'm not doing that work, I'm not loving myself well. If I don't build in Sabbath into my life, I'm not loving myself well. Um, and those build capacity so that then I can love others well. And, and fully and holy. And for 12 steppers, I mean, that's a wonderful practical outline of an 11th step, mm-hmm. the morning and evening prayer. I mean, we, it's funny because I did have that language that when I got to the 11th step, my sponsor talked about, you know, prayer, praying in the morning, praying in the evening bookends. I said, oh, those are examines. He said, yeah. what? Yeah. I said, no, we've got language for that. I know what that's that right. is. Yeah. Um, every morning I pray, I, I go to the gym at about five o'clock and, and, and in my drive, I try to just spend the whole time, however long it takes me, just in prayer or and reflection. And I pray some extended version of a third-step prayer mm. every morning. For me, I need a third-step prayer. Mm. You know, God, I give you my life and my will. 
free me from the bondage of my self-will, mm-hmm. you know, and, and from the bondage of worry and, and, and the need to control and just help me trust you. Even if I don't know where that's going, just help me do the next right thing. Mm-hmm. Some version of that in, in a little extended thing to just center that my life is, is, is only here by God's grace. And yeah. that if I can lead also for me, at least now in my recovery, I pray or try to pray almost daily, help me lead out, out of my recovery. Mm. Because that's the only healthy place because I lead, I, I'm an achiever too. Yeah. And I will lead out of ego and I'll lead out of accomplishments. We're growing church. I mean, we're doing wonderful things, reaching people, attendance going up, all the stuff. And if I'm not careful, that's where I live. Oh yeah. But if oh, I can no. lead out of my recovery, then I can have some humility to try to listen, be compassionate, be tolerant, kind, all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been such a great conversation. Thank I am you. so grateful to have you. I mean, yeah. as, as someone I've, I've looked up to, but but especially as a brother in this recovery journey, um, you know, that, that we can say that we're alcoholics, but more important that we're children of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. It's it's been a, it's it's a journey for all of us, and I'm so proud of you. And uh, and and uh, I'm a phone call away. I appreciate. It. I'm proud of you. Proud of you for the succession journey. We're going to put some links to to your Amazon bio. Just books coming out. Y'all need to read George. Um, just as he's transitioning to follow his journey, he's a leader that I look up to, and I know folks in our audience will want to do the same. Folks, we uh, appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Faith Revisited podcast, and we'll be back soon.